Three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, researchers developed lettuce that could help astronauts with bone density, a locked-in patient communicates for the first time, and a teenager discovers a cost-effective way to fight malaria. But first, it was this day in 1980 that Mount St. Helens became active after 123 years. A few months later, it went on to have a catastrophic and deadly eruption, triggering the largest landslide ever recorded. NASA's preparing to send humans to Mars sometime in the 2030s. The three-year mission will expose astronauts to a long period of microgravity, which will cause them to lose bone mass. But now, scientists report they've invented a new type of lettuce that produces a bone-stimulating hormone called PTH. Whilst there are medications available that can provide this key hormone, it requires daily injections and would be completely impractical to transport and store during a space mission. Someday, astronauts could grow the lettuce in space and help guard against bone loss simply by eating a big bowl of salad. Not only that, the lettuce might help stave off osteoporosis in resource-limited areas here on Earth. The researchers presented the results of their study at a meeting of the American Chemical Society on Tuesday. Here's Dr. Karen McDonald, part of the University of California Davis research team, explaining why lettuce. We decided to use lettuce because lettuce is a plant that has been grown on the International Space Station. It's also a plant that is very productive in terms of producing seeds. So our idea is that if we created a transgenic plant, one seed can generate, uh, if you grow that plant and harvest seeds, you can generate thousands of seeds. So you get this biological amplification of the amount of material. And so it's a very simple and cost-effective way to make a therapeutic. The only problem is, scientists estimate that astronauts would need to eat about 380 grams of the stuff a day to get enough of the PTH. That's about eight cups. Our next steps for the research are to try to improve the amount of the uh, PTHFC that's in the lettuce so that we can reduce the quantity that would need to be eaten. We also want to look at the stability of the lettuce uh, from one generation to the next over many generations to make sure it maintains its production level. We'd like to test the lettuce in space conditions. Um, And we also would like to do some animal studies to uh, test the the safety and efficacy in animal models. The researchers say they haven't tasted the lettuce yet because its safety hasn't been established, but they anticipate it will taste very similar to normal lettuce. Although growing this particular lettuce in space is still a way off, the researchers hope that by the time humans travel to Mars, they expect that plant-based production platforms will be in use. Dr. Kevin Yates, a graduate student at UC Davis, also presented at the meeting. And whilst it might be a while before he gets to try the lettuce himself, he's hopeful that the future of this research will be transformative. Plant-based production platforms for pharmaceuticals in low resource environments such as deep space are really the next step in the future of using biology to meet our needs. I don't think that we'll be able to do deep space exploration with with a crew of humans without this sort of technology. Um, And it's not just the lettuce on its own, it's part of a broader way of thinking where we try to use every resource that we have available to us, uh, whether it's on spacecraft or the moon or Mars.
A completely locked-in patient is now able to type out words and short sentences to his family after being implanted with a device that enables him to control a keyboard with his mind. Locked-in syndrome is a really rare condition where people are conscious and can see, hear and smell, but are unable to move or speak due to complete paralysis of their voluntary muscles, for example, as a result of the neurodegenerative disease ALS. People affected by this disease progressively lose all ability to move. They lose the ability to breathe on their own, end up in, often in a completely locked-in state. Some can communicate by blinking or moving their eyes, but those with completely locked-in syndrome can't even control their eye muscles. The research was co-authored by Jonas Zimmermann, a senior neuroscientist at the WISE Centre in Geneva, Switzerland. Participation in this study means uh, undergoing brain surgery, having these small electrodes placed into the area of the brain that's responsible for movement. What we really want to pick up is the activity from the brain as the person attempts to perform a movement. And whenever the person, for example, tries to move the eye, we see change in activity. So cells uh, suddenly start to spike, fire, and we can pick up this activity. We convert these spikes into what we call firing rates. And then we listen all over the array to all these different cells combine the activity from all these cells. Whenever the person is attempting to move, he can't move, but attempting to move, we see these changes and this is our signal for communication. Working with the researchers, the man learned how to generate brain activity that could alter the frequency of a sound wave via a computer program. He then applied this same strategy to control a spelling program, which allowed him to select letters one at a time to form words and phrases at an average rate of about one character per minute. Among his communications, the 36-year-old from Germany has requested goulash soup and beer and asked if his four-year-old son would like to watch Robin Hood with him. Oh, goodness. We've shown with the system that we developed that even people in completely locked-in state who have no other way of communication can communicate with their brain signals. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the Great Barrier Reef is under threat once again and we're heading back to space. The Great Barrier Reef might be in trouble once again. According to some scientists, the reef's in the midst of a widespread bleaching event. This would be the fourth in just six years. Sea surface temperature has been hotter than average, and much of the Great Barrier Reef marine parks experienced heat stress over the Australian summer, with temperatures in some areas of the water 2 to 3 degrees Celsius above average. Aerial surveys have shown that whole sections of the coral have been bleached white, and in some sections there were even reports of corals dying, a sign the reef is under some serious strain. Jodie Rummer is an Associate Professor of Marine Biology at James Cook University and she explained exactly what's happening. We know that 2021 was the warmest year on record for the world's oceans. We know that climate change is warming the ocean. It's leading to more frequent and severe marine heat waves. Over the past year, a lot of this excess heat has been absorbed by the oceans and their calculations, which I thought were astounding, were that it's the equivalent of like seven Hiroshima atomic bombs in terms of the amount of heat that is being absorbed. So those seven atomic bombs detonating every second. 
So it's it's a pretty immense amount of heat that the oceans are absorbing, and it's much, much beyond what we've ever experienced. Mass bleaching wasn't seen on the reef before 1998, but then it happened in 2002, 2016, 2017, 2020, and now possibly in 2022. The colour of reefs come from algae that live inside the coral and helps them feed. When the water gets too warm for too long, the coral gets stressed and ejects the algae. And if the temperature doesn't drop quickly, the coral can starve and die. Reef can recover after coral bleaching, but they need time. On the Great Barrier Reef, that's no longer occurring. Coral bleaching may be the new normal. We're having marine heat waves back to back, year by year, with no time for recovery. We are looking at more mass devastation to the Great Barrier Reef. And and those of us on the front lines doing the science, trying to understand how these temperature stressors are affecting species XYZ and ecosystems, whole ecosystems and populations, it's getting grim and it's getting to the point where we can't even simulate the combination of conditions that the reef is experiencing in a controlled laboratory setting in order to discern this. Officials from UNESCO have now arrived in Australia to assess the state of the reef and determine whether it should be listed as endangered, a rating that could help save the precious landmark. If the World Heritage listing of Endanger by UNESCO happens, I think that's the wake-up call that we need, not only here in Australia, but also to the rest of the world. It would also signify that we need help to cope with and deal with the primary stressor that the Great Barrier Reef is facing, which is climate change. To give the Great Barrier Reef the best chance at survival, we here in Australia need to address the number one problem that the Great Barrier Reef is facing, which is climate change. Unabated, we might be seeing annual coral bleaching, mass coral bleaching from the year 2044 onward. Heat waves are gonna become 50 times more prominent, more severe and more frequent as well. This is not the life that we want to live and this is not what we want to leave the next generation as well. It's not who we are as Australians. We need to address this problem immediately. Heading back to space now, NASA's next-generation moon rocket began its highly anticipated journey to the launch pad in Florida on Thursday for a final round of tests in the coming weeks that'll determine how soon the spacecraft can fly its first mission. Standing at almost 100 metres, the mega-rocket's taller than the Statue of Liberty and even Big Ben. It's an absolute behemoth of a rocket costing $37 billion to develop and will be the backbone of NASA's Artemis programme aimed at returning astronauts to the moon. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson took the stage on Thursday to welcome its arrival. NASA's Artemis program will pave the way for humanity's giant leap. Future missions to Mars. There's no doubt that we are in a golden era of human space exploration, discovery, and ingenuity in space. And it all begins with Artemis One. Still to come at the Sunday 7, the Royal Mint wants your e-waste and a research is developing a breathing cushion for anxiety right after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Could a breathing cushion be the key to relieving anxiety? Developed by the University of Bristol, a huggable soft pillow that breathes was shown to reduce anxiety as effectively as a guided meditation in people anticipating a maths test. What we got them to do was a maths test. So we had them to do some sequencing of numbers, some of which were impossible. Um, So we really ramped up the level of anxiety. That's Dr Christopher Kent, an associate professor in cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol. They tested more than 100 students, giving a third of them this breathing cushion to hug before the exam. Its hidden inflatable pouch simulates slow breathing. That reduced their pre-test anxiety. So they still got anxious, but they got less anxious than if we gave them no intervention whatsoever. Based on questionnaires, researchers found anxiety scores for cushion-hugging students were similar to those who meditated. Testing still in the early stages and the pillow hasn't been tried in patients with diagnosed anxiety disorders, but researchers are hopeful. We can use therapies, we can use pharmaceutical interventions, but they take time, they cost money, whereas a cushion is just something people intuitively interact with. The researchers hope to have the cushion in stores in about a year and think it could even be useful in hospitals and nursing homes. What do you do when it's time to upgrade your electronics? Do you recycle them, pass them on to live another life elsewhere? Or do they get banished to a dark corner never to see the light of day ever again? As the old saying goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure, and it couldn't be truer when it comes to your old tech. In the UK, each person generates 24 kilograms of e-waste each year, the second highest amount in the world. Our e-waste is a problem piling up, but the Royal Mint doesn't see it as rubbish. Their main business is making coins, including gold commemorative ones, and they're taking circuit boards from laptops and phones and salvaging the precious metal. This is Matthew James, head of R&D at the Royal Mint. We're hoping to recover all of the metals on the board, primarily gold to start with, but we're looking at copper, Uh, nickel, tin, particularly tin, and some silver. The average mobile phone contains 0.04 grams of gold. After placing circuit boards into a secret chemical solution, they're able to extract what's inside and are left with a brown powder. After heating for 30 minutes at more than 1,000 degrees Celsius, the end result is pure shiny gold. At the moment, this is all happening in a lab, but the plan is to scale it up so that 90 tonnes of e-waste can be processed every week. They hope to be doing that by this time next year. Can essential oils fight malaria? Well, if you ask Asil Day, the answer could be yes. The 17-year-old from Austin, Texas, discovered an inexpensive way to kill a larva of mosquitoes that spread viral illnesses such as malaria. I did this because mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal on Earth. They kill over 1 million people 
every year and cause hundreds of millions of cases of long-term illnesses like paralysis, microcephaly, and developmental delays. The problem here is that these illnesses currently don't have many treatments. And as a result, we rely almost entirely on mosquito vector control or population management in order to prevent these diseases. Inspired by the socio-economic nature of the issue, Asil incorporated three essential oils into baker's yeast microcapsules, which the larvae eat. In this case, yeast is advantageous because it stabilizes the volatile essential oil in a protective shell, and it has a high loading capacity, and mosquito larvae prefer to consume the yeast, creating a Trojan horse effect. As a result, Asil demonstrated the high toxicity of three essential oils targeting mesquite larvae and found that ingesting the oils prevented any surviving larvae from developing to mosquitoes. In addition, Asil found that her larvicide appeared to be harmless to nearby algae and other types of larvae, but this is still yet to be tested in a natural ecosystem. By integrating this larvicide with existing mosquito control methods such as genetic modification and biological control, humanity can be one step closer to eliminating the deadliest animal on Earth. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.